It's TechBiter Worldwide for the week of January 20th, 2008. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in far less than an hour because we leave out the sports, the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Remember the love and spoonfuls? Did you ever have to make up your mind? Did you ever have to make up your mind? Pick up on one and leave the other behind. It's not often easy and not often kind. Did you ever have to make up your mind? That pretty well describes my attitude about Vista. I really like Vista, and I really dislike Vista. I suspect that most Vista users are in about that same frame of mind. Vista looks great. It features some long overdue security improvements, and in addition to that, there are fixes under the hood that you don't really see in most cases, but make the application work better. But Vista is almost always doing something to my disk drives, and it's making me crazy for two reasons. First, I can't seem to get a definitive answer from anybody about what Vista is actually doing. Second. All of that disk activity makes audio playback about as enjoyable as listening to a scratched record on a bad turntable. Skips, pops, and jumps are common. Despite Vista's better appearance and enhanced security, I'm not sure that I'll be using Vista at this time next year. I have been making some headway on the constant disk thrashing. That's the way I started to write this program when I was working on it in late December. That opinion has changed a little bit, although whether I continue to use Vista or switch back to XP is still largely going to be determined by what happens following Service Pack One. The problems have been largely solved, but not in a particularly satisfactory manner, and only by using a huge hammer. If you're having a problem with Vista. And you'd like to try to tame it? I've got some suggestions for you. Some of which work. Some of which have little or no effect. Some of which are dangerous. And if you decide that you really want to do any of these, make sure you visit the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com, and read all of the information that's there. Before you start, some of these things involve dealing with the registry, and if you're unsure of your capabilities in dealing with the registry, then those would be techniques that you would not want to try. I divided the techniques up into three categories. The first is safe, with few consequences. The second category. Is a category of changes that are still safe, but might have some consequences you won't particularly care for. And then third are options that I probably wouldn't do, simply because they are dangerous. Here's an easy one: you can turn off Windows services that you don't need. If you happen to have the Ultimate Troubleshooter program that I talked about a year or so ago. It's a good way to find out actually what's running. Or you can use the system configuration tool from the control panel's administrative tools entry. Take a look at the services tab. Now you can turn services off here, but if you do that, every time you start Windows, Windows will pop up an announcement that it is not starting some applications. I find that annoying. A better way is to turn off services from the administrative tools computer management console. You drill down to the services tab, then stop and disable. 
two actions there. Stop the service, then disable it for the ones that you don't want to use. What are the ones you might not want to use that will be on by default? Offline files will be turned on by default. You want to leave that on if you are using the offline file synchronization program. Tablet PC input services will be on. If you don't have a tablet PC, you really ought to turn those off. They don't do you any good. They just eat up resources. Terminal services will be on by default. Very few home users, probably no home users, will ever need that. Windows Search will be turned on. Windows Search does help you find things, but it also drags down performance in general. If you spend a lot of time looking for files on your computer, then you probably need a better way to organize the files that are on your computer, or you need to leave Windows Search turned on. And then there's the fax service. If you happen to have a fax modem, leave that on. Otherwise, why waste the resources? Then there are Windows features. You want to turn off the Windows features that you don't need. You'll find this from the Programs and Features section of the Control Panel. And then there'll be a text entry there called Turn Windows Features On or Off. It's in the left panel. Here are the ones that I would select. The indexing service, unless you're going to use the Windows search feature. Tablet PC, optional component. Again, if you don't have a tablet PC, why have tablet PC functions running? Windows DFS replication service. Windows fax and scan. Again, you want to leave that one on if you happen to have a modem that you use for faxing. Windows meeting space. If you use the Windows live meeting service, leave that on. Otherwise, shut it off. Now, after you've made those changes, Windows will probably ask you to reboot the system. And you may have to wait quite a while as it updates the configuration. In my case, it was about 10 minutes. Another feature in that same area you might want to turn off would be Remote Differential Compression. That tracks changes in files over a network to limit bandwidth usage. If you're on a home LAN, you really don't care about this because it isn't going to help your LAN very much, and it will slow your computer. Next, if you have serial ATA hard drives, you'll want to try to improve their performance. Windows turns off certain functions by default. If you purchased your computer within the past year or so, it probably has serial ATA drives, SATA. But Vista will almost certainly have the settings wrong. And unfortunately, in my case, I couldn't change them. There are two features that should be turned on, write caching and advanced performance. One of the best things you can do to improve Vista performance is add memory. Microsoft recommends a minimum of one gigabyte of memory. I recommend an absolute minimum of two gigabytes of memory, and more is better, up to four gigabytes if you're running the 32-bit system. My machine has just two gigabytes. I'd really prefer to have four. But there's a way to add some memory not going to be quite as fast as having regular memory in the machine, but if you have one of those little key drives, 2 gigabytes, for example, you can plug that in and ask ReadyBoost to use it. But chances are, ReadyBoost will bite you on the hand. ReadyBoost demands very fast hardware, and few key drives are fast enough. However, there is a workaround for that. You can edit the registry and allow virtually any key drive to be used by ReadyBoost. I found that even using relatively slow memory improved performance, but I found a better way later. You should also probably turn off Windows Hibernation. 
unless you use hibernation with your computer. If it's a desktop, you probably don't. And if it's a notebook, you might reconsider if you do use hibernation. First of all, it uses a lot of system resources. On a desktop, you certainly don't want it. And if you decide you don't want it on the notebook, it's easy to turn off. Choose Power Options from the Control Panel, then click Change Plan Settings, then Change Advanced Power Settings, expand the Sleep section, then expand the Hibernate After selection, turn that setting down to zero. It's more complicated sounding than it really is. The next section are those safe options, but ones that possibly have annoying consequences. Turning off Windows Search Indexing. Now, this is supposed to speed searches, and it does. Trouble is, it slows the computer down the rest of the time. To turn this off, start the Windows Explorer, right-click on a disk, and choose Properties. Clear the check mark from the Index This Drive for Faster Searching. You'll then see another dialog box and specify that you want this change to apply to all subfolders and files. The process of making the change can take half an hour, maybe an hour, perhaps even more on a disk with a lot of files. On a disk with just a few files, it'll take just a few seconds. So this is typically something that you want to set with a brand new computer before you get a lot of files loaded onto it. And I would turn off automatic disk defragmentation. Windows Vista tries to keep your disk defragmented with a version of Disk Keeper, or you may have added the full version of Disk Keeper. Now, even though Disk Keeper does a very good job of staying out of the way, it's probably still better to run that defragmenter when it's convenient for you, and not when it can cause problems. For example, I don't want to have a disk defragmenter running when I'm recording TechBiter Worldwide. So you right-click the C drive, select Properties, check Defragment Now on the Tools tab, and then clear the check from Run on a Schedule. The next section, Dangerous Options. I don't recommend these, even though they might improve performance somewhat. Some people recommend turning off the Windows Defender operation. I wouldn't recommend doing that. I would consider it only if I had a very serious speed problem and speed was more important than safety. I tend to be a bit paranoid. Windows Defender offers some protection against malware, but if you want to disable it, you'll select Windows Defender from the control panel, then Tools from the top menu, then Options, clear the checkmark from Automatically Scan My Computer. Turn off System Restore. Uh, I say this is extremely dangerous, and I recommend against it. However, in effect, that's what I've done. If you have a bulletproof backup system in place, and you're certain you're never going to need System Restore, then you can disable it. And a lot of people recommend disabling user access control. Some people simply detest this feature. I wouldn't disable it for two reasons. First of all, it provides a safety net to protect your computer from malware. And second, it really doesn't slow the operation of the computer down. It does force the operating system to ask you some questions once in a while, but only when you're doing something that could have serious ramifications. So I would leave user access control turned on. I was hoping, after I made many of those changes, to have a Vista Speed Demon. But the sad truth is that even with the changes made, the safe ones, I still get smoother audio playback with no skips, jumps, or pops when I use a four-year-old notebook computer running Windows XP on a single-core processor that runs half the speed of the dual-core processor that I'm using for Vista on the desktop. 
The desktop computer has twice the amount of memory of the notebook and a far faster disk subsystem. Yet, with all of Vista's features turned on, the audio is unreliable. And, by the way, a nearly 8-year-old Mac iBook with a 300 megahertz processor, a paltry 500 megabytes of RAM, and an external hard drive that runs through USB still beats the Vista machine on audio playback. I find that sad. The addition of ReadyBoost caching helped the audio playback quite a bit, but there was still a lot of disk thrashing. I assumed what the problem was was the volume shadow copy service, which Microsoft abbreviates as VSS. I know that disabling volume shadow copy is not a good long-term solution, but I decided to give that big hammer approach a try. I disabled the Acronis backup services, Carbonite, Volume Shadow Copy, and Windows Backup. Disk activity instantly dropped back into the normal range, and Winamp started playing my music without those skips, pops, jumps, and noises. So then I re-enabled Volume Shadow Copy. Disk activity increased quite a bit, and the skips resumed. Enabling Carbonite with Volume Shadow Copy still active had very little effect. Carbonite does depend on Volume Shadow Copy for access to open files, but with VSS off and Carbonite on, backups occur smoothly, except that open files are skipped. Well, I can live with that, because audio recording and playback are once again possible, and disk activity is normal. I considered that kind of an interim solution, because turning off Volume Shadow Copy also disables System Restore. I don't use System Restore very often, but in the few times I've needed it, it's been a lifesaver. So I don't like having it disabled. At this point, my Vista system is able to record and playback audio just fine. Volume Shadow Copy is turned off. That means System Restore is turned off. I don't like that. Microsoft will release Service Pack 1 for Vista sometime in the first quarter of 2008. If that solves the problem and allows me to restore volume shadow copy, and go back to using System Restore, fine, I'll stick with Vista. Otherwise, I'll probably return, reluctantly, to XP until the next version of Vista. Computers are great. I am frequently amazed by the things that I can do all by myself on a computer with the right software. Recently, I needed to eliminate some backgrounds from a series of photos. In some cases, the process was easy because the background was a single shade and the foreground object was sharply delineated. In other cases, the background was a lot more complicated, or maybe the foreground differed only slightly from the background in color or density. Well, Adobe Photoshop's new tools make the process far easier than it would have been just a year or two ago. And had I been forced to use physical prints and an X-Acto knife, well, the work would have taken far longer, and the results would have been a lot worse. I am equally amazed, though, when something as simple as a basic upgrade goes completely nuts. When I started an Adobe program recently, I got a notice from Adobe that there was an update for the Extend Script Toolkit for Windows. It's a 5 megabyte download, the notice said, so I figured it would take only a few seconds to obtain and install. I followed the link and discovered that it was no longer a 5-megabyte download. Now it was a 28-megabyte download. Yeah, no big deal. A minute or so download, and not much more to install it. Or 
so I thought. Well, then the download started, and instead of 5 megabytes or 28 megabytes, the download is now 253 megabytes. And Adobe said it was going to take more than four hours to dribble that file onto my computer. Within a few moments, Windows recalculated the download time and dropped it down to about seven minutes. That's more like it. So the file finished downloading. I clicked to start the installation process. And the process failed. Well, according to the dialog box, and I quote, the updater is unable to locate the product to be updated. So Adobe's update process couldn't find the Adobe product that it told me it wanted to update. I tried the installation again a little later, and everything worked as it should have. And that actually bothers me a little bit more than had it not functioned, because when something like that fails once and then succeeds without my having done anything, I worry about what caused it. Computers, unlike humans, are not self healing. And speaking of not being self-healing and goofy updates, I have to thank Apple for an odd series of events that happened shortly after Steve Jobs' keynote address at Macworld on Tuesday. The Windows desktop system said that it needed to install a QuickTime update. I have never liked QuickTime. I install it because some applications I have need it. That also included an iTunes update. And about the same time, my Apple PowerBook told me that it needed to install updates for OS X 10.5 Leopard. Well, the Windows update killed Winamp, and the PowerBook update seemed to kill the entire computer. Some days I wish that Apple would think just a little less different. I have largely stopped using iTunes. That's another story for another time. And I now use Winamp as my primary audio playback program. But I keep iTunes on the computer to manage music on my iPod and on my wife's iPod. When I visited a website that used QuickTime to provide some of its content, it told me that I should upgrade. Apple's website offered me QuickTime by itself or QuickTime with iTunes, so I selected both. The download process and the installation procedure completed without incident, or so it seemed. Then I tried to start Winamp. It started and immediately crashed. After trying to start Winamp a couple of times and watching it crash each time, I rebooted the computer and tried again. It started. It crashed. It started. It crashed. So I reinstalled Winamp on top of the existing installation. Winamp started and crashed. I wasn't able to take the next step until the following day. Then I uninstalled Winamp and installed a clean version. Winamp now knows nothing about any of my installed music, nothing about anything I have played recently, nothing about the various settings that it used, nothing about selections that have been added recently. But at least it worked. It's bad enough when Apple renders an application on a Windows machine unusable. But what happens when it renders an entire Apple notebook useless. The more serious issue involved my G4 PowerBook. The system update function told me there were a couple of updates. Recommended I install them. I did. The installation required a system restart, and so I allowed that to happen. And then I saw what appeared to be a kernel panic. Apple doesn't have those blue screens of death. When Unix crashes, the screen is black and the letters are white. It's called a kernel panic because the operating system's kernel can't figure out what to do next. 
Apple's head honchos like to make fun of Microsoft's blue screen of death cryptic messages. When a Windows machine crashes, you'll typically see something that says stop, and then there'll be a hex number, for example, 7B, and then you'll typically see five additional numbers, hex numbers, in parentheses, along with a relatively cryptic message, for example, an accessible boot device. Okay, that's pretty cryptic. But what you can do is you can take the word stop, you can take the hex number, in this case 0x00000007b, and the text that comes with it, inaccessible boot device, plug that into a Google search, and you'll immediately have a whole series of links that tell you how to resolve that problem. And in most cases, you'll have several from Microsoft that will explain, in more or less plain English, how to fix the problem. Well, with the Apple, I had an entire screen full of hex numbers and a lot of cryptic messages. I wasn't absolutely certain that the application had crashed, but I waited 10 minutes and nothing happened. So I shut the machine off, and I hoped that a second reboot would be a return to normalcy. Unfortunately, I got the same error. So I grabbed the installation DVD, pushed it into the PowerBook's DVD slot, held down the C key to ensure the system would boot to the DVD, and I was offered the opportunity to install OS X 10.5 Leopard. I thought that maybe I could install Leopard over the existing version, but the DVD was older than the installed version because the installed version had been updated. So my options were to format the drive and wipe out all existing data and start over or install to a different partition, which would retain all of my data, but would kill all of the applications, or to live with a computer that had suddenly become a rather high-priced doorstop. The third option was clearly not acceptable. I could have lived with the second option, except that the Apple computer is mainly a toy and doesn't have a lot of data on it. That left option one, zero the disk and start over. Because I don't use the PowerBook as a production machine, that option was acceptable to me. But fortunately, it turned out to be none of the above. I wanted to make sure that I had a picture of that black screen of death. So the following day, I started the computer, went to get the camera, and when I came back, the PowerBook computer was sitting at the login screen. Each time I had turned the computer on, it had gotten a little bit further in writing the files that it needed to write. And that final reboot, during which I went to get the camera, took two or three minutes to do that, it finished the update process and displayed the login screen. Clearly, I have to take responsibility for not waiting long enough. But it seems to me that waiting a total of more than 20 minutes for a computer to finish doing something that it has never previously taken more than five minutes was more than enough to wait and more than enough time for me to reasonably conclude that there was a problem. Now, it seems to me that Apple could have eliminated this problem. First, there could have been a warning during the restart process. That warning could have said, this restart process was going to take far longer than usual. Second, there could be some sort of process indicator added. The screen that I thought the machine had stalled on is a text screen, not a graphics screen, so we couldn't have a little graphical bar but I think Apple could probably figure out how to display a percentage to show just how far along the process is. After all, Microsoft was doing that in the 1980s. And third, 
Apple really could provide some sort of hardware feedback. If you have a Windows machine, you're going to have a little disk access light. That light flickers when the application is reading or writing the disk. If a Windows application seems not to be doing anything, I can always look at the indicator light. If there's a lot of activity, I can reasonably assume that the process has not crashed. Most, and perhaps all, Apple computers omit that light. So all I can figure is if Apple built cars, they probably wouldn't include a fuel gauge. You'd know it was time to buy fuel when the car stopped running. Bottom line, the update did not kill the machine. I didn't have to reinstall the operating system and all the applications. But the process sure could have been a lot easier on my nerves. Being different isn't always being better. So now both Apple and Microsoft are annoyed with me this week. Two for the price of one in stupid spams this week. The IRS has my refund ready. Well, this is pretty efficient. I got an email from the IRS. They want to send me my refund, even though I haven't yet filled out the return or even started on any of the tax forms. Were there some dead giveaways in this message? Just a few. The message had been sent to undisclosed recipients. In other words, blind copied. My name was nowhere on the form. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but... I think the IRS has my name. There was also no IRS logo. The agency name was in very large, bright blue text. Ugly, bright blue text. Tacky, ugly, bright blue text. The IRS wouldn't do that. And then I am invited to click a link to access my tax refund. But the message says it will take three to nine days to process it. I have to think about this one. For the IRS to know that I have a refund coming... I would have had to file a tax return, which I haven't done. Yet this form is telling me that I have to fill out this form, but they already know what my refund is. There may be some people who like this kind of circular reasoning, but it makes me dizzy. Oh, and then there's that link that I'm supposed to click. The link goes to a server in the SU top-level domain. SU, that's the top-level domain of the Soviet Union. Soviet Union doesn't exist anymore, but Russia continues to maintain the domain and that of some other Soviet-era entities. I know the dollar seems to be in freefall and that outsourcing is all the rage these days, but I'm fairly sure that the IRS is still going to have a gov top-level domain and that it probably hasn't been outsourced to Russia. Spammer made it really easy for me to determine which messages I wanted to delete this week. I glanced into the pile of suspected spam messages to confirm that no valid messages had accidentally been classified as spam. I tend to do that a couple of times a day. But in this case, my job was really easy. Normally, I scan senders and then subject lines. I can probably do a 100 messages or more in less than a minute. On that day, I scanned more than a 100 messages in less than 10 seconds. If you take a look at the TechBiter World Wide website, you'll see why. It was a whole string of messages that claimed to be responses. They all began with the subject lines, all began with RE and a colon, indicating they're a reply to my message. But after the RE colon, there was nothing, just a blank line. Well, I don't send messages without a subject line. I never send messages without subject lines. So any message coming to me with an RE and nothing else in the subject line is automatically known as a spam. I like it when spammers make it easy for me. Thanks for listening. This has been TechBiter Worldwide for the week of January 20th, 2008. 
I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you want, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.